You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Linda. Welcome, Linda. How are you? Oh, I am awesome. I'm so happy to be here talking with you today, Annie. Oh, I'm so glad, too. This is great. So why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your journey with alcohol? Where did it all start? Oh, well, sure. It probably begins with the the fact that my family's business was in the alcohol industry. So it was very normalized in my home to drink and drink often. And what the heck's wrong with you if you're not drinking? So there was alcoholic behavior in my home that I grew up with. It was also that I'm an adoptee. And my, my brother was an adopted person from a different family. So there was always that whole identity crisis going on of being sort of a square peg and a round hole. And then you pour alcohol on top of a volatile situation. It just created a lot of, it was a tumultuous childhood, let me say. And so as I grew up and I had more of a relationship with alcohol as I grew older, because it started to show me that, I don't know, I was more popular. I talked better. I was sexier. I was all this and that, I, you know, that I thought that I couldn't go into a social situation without alcohol. It just grew and grew for decades. I was a real high functioning alcoholic. I don't know if I ever was like really, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, but I drank alcoholically because that's what I was shown in my childhood home. And so it didn't become a a huge issue to me until seven years ago. I've been sober since September 18th of, I think it was 2016. And I was told I had a high liver enzyme count. And I was like, what the hell's that? And I thought, oh, there must be a mistake. (laughs) Not even believing the doctor when she told me that there was something wrong. And by that time, I was just, I was an empty nester with my children basically being gone. And all of my trouble that I'd never dealt with all my life of adoption angst and uh, growing up in a dysfunctional home had all come to a huge head. And I was drinking almost day and night. And so it was, it became like a do or die situation. And I landed in a rehab center where I had to detox because I was going through some severe withdrawal, found myself just a month and a half later, again, in the same rehab situation. I hadn't changed anything. In fact, I had gotten a lot worse with my drinking, but the second go around was when things started to change for me. And I was given a book called this naked mind. And it was from a good friend of mine. Her name's Michelle and another one named uh, Nicole. And they showed me a different way in looking at my uh, relationship with alcohol and how it wasn't my best friend and it wasn't my lover. And it was lying to me all these years. So I started deconstructing everything I knew about myself, about life, about my uh, identity, about my adoption, about who I thought the holy mystery is to me. And it just changed everything. And through your book, I had a spiritual awakening. (laughs) And I really attribute a lot of it to reading that book forwards and backwards. And I think you even had it on Audible too. Pretty sure I read it on or let listen to it and read it underlined. Oh my gosh. It was just, I recommend it to everyone. 
Wow, that's amazing. That's so great. So let's talk more about kind of your your backstory. And I know you're an advocate and you talk so much about adoption and and how that can be so troubling for people. And it's it's something that I have not had a guest speak really openly about. And there's so many sources for the pain that cause us to ultimately find an escape mechanism. And because alcohol is literally the most common one on the planet, uh, we're united in in the alcohol story, but we have all of these different journeys of how we get there. So I'd love to hear kind of more about that. Of course. And it is the easiest thing to numb your pain. It's so readily available. And especially in my childhood home, it was encouraged. So from a very early age, I was taught that talking about being adopted, wanting to know my beginnings or my adoption story was very taboo. And because it highlighted to my adoptive parents that they truly were not biologically connected to me. And so it was kind of blasphemy if I ever even spoke the words. And so that's a lot of denial of self and a lot of identity pushed down. And I moved more into my adaptable false self uh, to accomplish life versus trying to find who I truly was because that wasn't encouraged in my home. And let me back up just a little bit because adoptees, most of us were relinquished at birth. So that means you were cooked in juices in utero of a birth mom, pretty much knowing she wasn't going to keep you. And that is not great for a baby uh, in you, uh, you know, to be living in in utero. And then when you're born, you're severed from the only thing you've ever known, which is your birth mother. Most of us never saw the the mother again. So there was that lack of that oxytocin hormone that's so important for bonding and attunement and attachment. We didn't get any of that. And for me, my adoptive mom had no nurturing capabilities. It just wasn't in her makeup to know how to attach. She expected her children to attach to her. So there was a lot of emotional neglect and all of that just percolated and got worse as my brother and I got older. And we kept showing how we weren't of their biological makeup because we were just so different. We all looked different. It was just a mismatch. And so, like I said, the easiest thing to reach for that was readily available in my home was to mask the pain with alcohol. And it worked until it did not work at all. One of the things that I've been, I've been thinking about so much, and I know you talk a lot about with like the story of like, you know, almost, well, can you talk a little bit about how in your journey, you even wrote under a pseudonym and you, you came with this almost separation of self. Cause I want to go into another thing I've been thinking about a lot, but if you start there and give us that background, that would be really great. Sure. Um, and it is kind of curious to me because my birth mother used a fictitious name on my birth certificate. And um, I had to go through an enormous amount of finding needles and haystacks to actually find her, which I did. But she actually put my birth father's real name on the birth certificate, which was funny that she gave him up, but she went under a fictitious name. So anyway, fast forward to when it's time for me, I felt so compelled to tell my own story and wrote two books, I chose to use a pseudonym. And I did so to protect my family, my adoptive family, mainly my mom and dad, because they would never accept my truth. And that would be uh, the severing of the relationship with them 
if they should ever find out that I wrote those two books. And I wrote under not only a pseudonym, but I changed everyone else's names in my books too, just for extra layer of protection. And I couldn't, I, I finally, once my father passed, and now I have no childhood family left, I lost all of them within three years. I finally reconciled that, look at what I'm doing. I'm using a fictitious name, just like my birth mother. Isn't that funny that I'm, my psyche is basically split of being, who am I? Am I Emma Stevens or am I Linda Pivak? And so I went through a very big integration that needed to happen. And I was well on my way with my whole seven year sobriety walk. It just felt like the right next thing to do. And so I I'm, can't say enough about how I'm happy now. Emma is still my brand name. I will write another book, but I've let everyone know that my real name is Linda. Mm. I feel congruent with myself now, you know, it's just, it was no cognitive dissonance left anymore. Oh, that's okay. So that's the perfect tee up for this, because I, I want to talk about this idea of cognitive dissonance and, and the overlap here, because one of the things that is so, I think, unique about the snake in mind is that I say that actually the behavior is less of the problem than the internal fighting of the two or three or more voices or parts of yourself that you have that are all vying for supremacy in this hierarchy of, are you gonna drink or are you not gonna drink? So it centers around this behavior, this massive argument that you're having internally, but that pain of internal fighting of, of cognitive dissonance of the internal strife is, is often what drives us to drink more. And in yeah. most people's stories, where drinking really goes off the rails is once we've decided with part of ourselves to do something about it. Mm -hmm. It's because that all of a sudden, yes, you might be over drinking. Yes, there's problems. But then you introduce this like, okay, we're going to do something about it. You, you brought in another character into the arena. I like to call it in the arena. And one of the things that I think is so important to heal what you're talking about in your journey through adoption and then writing these books under you know, a different name is we have to bring into sort of our, our mental arena, all of these voices and, and give them all grace and give them all compassion. Right. So like, there's the voice that you wake up the next morning after having too much to drink and you can hear that voice. And for most people, that voice is punishing. That voice is angry. That voice thinks you're worthless. It's disgusted. It's, it's so intense. And, and we want to hate that voice. But also that voice is the one that, you know, it's, it's out there to protect us. It's if you were to ask that voice, like, why are you so mean to me? It would be like, look, we're about to ruin our lives. Like we're about to lose all, we're about to lose our marriages. We're about to lose our kids. Like this is real. We have to get this serious. Right. And then yeah. if you're going to go to the voice of right before you had the drink the night before, that voice is generally really sweet. And it's really like, Hey, you know, you've had a hard day. We can try again tomorrow. It's no big deal. I know you'll fix this eventually. You're stronger than this. You're not broken. Just have one. And again, what does that voice want? Well, that voice wants you to feel better. It's, it's loving. You know, I would say sometimes that drinking is an act of self-love. Like it's loving you. It's just using the wrong tool, which is alcohol because alcohol is never going to be the loving answer or solution. So the voice in the morning is loving you from a protection point using the wrong tool, which is shame and blame and anger. The voice in the evening 
is loving you from a place, but using the wrong tool, which is alcohol. And so it's seeing all of that clearly. And then just like you say in your story, which I love the, the synergies of these things, it's, it's the ability to ultimately integrate those and be like, okay, you, I, I get you're protecting me, the wrong tool, no more shame and blame. You, I get you're loving on me, wrong tool, alcohol is not it. And then you, you kind of find this place of peace. Oh, I love every bit of that. And like you said, all of our parts are welcome. And I'm very careful and of how I speak to myself now. I wrote a lot of about like IFS, which is the internal family yeah. system. And the gathering place that I wrote is having conversations with my younger parts that I know I can't go back to 19 whatever and actually fix that. But the one that still shows up today, my six-year-old, my 12-year-old, I can talk with them now and say, you know, I know you want this. I know you want to drive the bus on this, but let's have a conversation. And I do it with love and grace and all of that good stuff. But let me just say that I couldn't have done any of that work until I fixed my core beliefs. And my core as an adoptee, and I think it's a pretty common theme, is that we feel as innately unwanted. Mm -hmm. And there's the low self-esteem. There's, I'm sorry to bother you. I don't want to be a burden, all of that kind of stuff, because we feel like at any moment, the rug will be ripped out from underneath us. We'll be rehomed. We'll be cast out. We won't be accepted, whatever it might be. And so until I went back, I did a lot of EMDR work of my implicit memories to make them match my 2023 20, or whatever year it was at that point, make them integrate together and say, is that even a true belief? Did it really have anything to do with me as an infant or in utero? It did not. No one knew me. <laughs> so for me to develop that whole idea and carry it with me for the rest of my life, that I'm an unwanted indiv individual is a broken story. You sort of answered it, but like, yeah. How do you reconcile like with the, like you were given away. So how, how do you reconcile that? And what you just said already, I feel like is such a, such an alternative belief that gives so much peace is like, they didn't know me. They didn't even know what they were giving away. Right. But is there more? Well, for me, I did research to find out about the culture at the time in the sixties, uh, women, young, single pregnant women were coerced to give their babies away out of shame and out of, don't you want to give this couple that's married and has money, give your baby a better life. And that's, we get into the industry of adoption when we start talking about that. It's a big money-making industry. So these young women were shamed. They gave away their babies. They were told, don't think about that baby ever again. Um, and they went through the rest of their lives with grief and a trauma that was never solved. So once I had an understanding of what she, my birth mother was going through and the components that were, made her um, do what she did or the relinquishment, I had so much more understanding that it never had anything really to do with me as a person or a spirit on this earth, having a earthly experience. It had everything to do with what she was going through. And then even with my adoptive parents, I lived in a very abusive home, but here again, it was because of their inadequacies and it had nothing to do with me as a person. And so for me to finally start separating myself from that 
and saying almost like giving myself a break. You did not cause this. And life wanted life. That's why I'm here. So that's why I'm no longer a burden. And mm. it was just a mind shift, flipping the switch of saying, what would I rather believe? And what do I really know is true? And that's how I started to, it's a process I'll be doing all my life, a process of integrating of that wholeness and accepting that life wanted life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's so beautiful. So, well, before we move on from this piece of your story, can you give the names of your books for anyone who wants to find them? I would love to. It was truly a labor of love. I mean, it's not a big money-making thing, but I do touch lives and I get to hear from those people. Uh, the first one is called The Gathering Place, An Adoptee Story. And the second book is a cautionary tale about when you go look for counseling, make sure you're giving your life to a person, a doctor, a therapist, a counselor that has your best interest at heart. And it's called A Fire is Coming. But both of them talk about how adoption has colored my life, made every decision I've ever made in my life, and how I've befriended my adoption angst now to where it's more like my superpower. I'm very aware of it, but I'm not triggered in any lasting way where it drives my bus anymore. And I try to help other adoptees. And our community has grown because now we have late discovery adoptees. We have misattributed parentage individuals that through DNA are finding out your dad's not your dad. Wow. And that, can you imagine how that brings you to your knees later in life to find that, that DNA surprise? And then there's donor conceived where you may have a hundred siblings out there that you find out through DNA that you have a biological connection with. So my, my job, I feel like my purpose in life and my sobriety, I hook everything on. If I hadn't become sober, none of this would have happened. Oh, beautiful, Linda. I love, um, I love hearing these stories. I was interviewing a woman named Arlen Hamilton, who started the first ever venture capitalist firm for minorities and women in Silicon Valley. And, you know, she was telling me the same sort of thing. Like, first it was sobriety. First it was your work. Then it was this work. And like, I can't tell you how like this, you know, fills me so much. And it's so, it, I, I'm in such gratitude to to hear your story because it's just like incredible to, to be able to see how, you know, you take these little risks, you do these little things that you feel like you're called to do. And then there is this bigger ripple effect that you possibly can't even imagine. And, um, and to think of this work specifically with adoptees and all those other uh, demographics that you just mentioned, it's like the, yeah, it's, I can see just such a need for reconciliation and conversation and, and such an opportunity to live in a day and age where technology specifically allows people of, you know, to come together in a way you couldn't, like if you were you know, in a different day and age, you might've been yeah. the only person in your town. And, and by the way, you would have never been able to even admit it or, or you would have been shunned because of it. There was so much secrecy that's unraveling as well, which is really beautiful. Yeah. And if I could throw a, a few statistics out there, sure, please. is that adoptees are well-known and well-established scientifically overrepresented in addiction, in the mm -hmm. mental health field. In uh, um, recently, I've heard about um, ADHD because of 
them spending so much time being preoccupied with thinking about how they don't fit in and then not, you know, uh, being part of life as a regular developmental thing going through their life. They're just preoccupied. And then there's incarceration. Uh, and then adoptees are four times more likely to attempt death by suicide. Wow. Wow. It's a real issue. And just like alcohol is with everyone, you have a major trauma, what's the first thing? Numb the pain. Yeah. But it, it only makes it worse. And so have you in your healing work and having just having spoken to you for a few minutes now, I I'm, can pretty safely assume that this is going to be a yes, but through this work, have you come to a place where you even can find gratitude for your journey and your history and like, okay, there is some gifts in here that would not have been available to me if I would have had a traditional upbringing in childhood. Uh, let me make sure I understood. I may have thought I knew what you were saying. <laughs> um, are you asking, have I gotten to a place of gratitude of being an alcoholic? Or being an adoptee or either. Oh, or. Okay. Let's see. Yes. And yes. Not that I feel like it had to happen, but I needed a catalyst and I can't separate any one thing. All, if you do a timeline of your life, you'll just see how everything, even though you thought it was a tangent at the time or you went rogue at this spot, no, it's all connected. One thing led to the other. And if I hadn't had a huge catalyst of, of being brought to my knees about that I was killing myself with alcohol. I was really at a do and die situation of I'm either gonna live or I'm gonna die. And luckily I, I found my way out of that deep dark hole. But would I want anyone to have to go through that kind of thing? No. And even the same with adoption, my being an advocate is all about, we're always gonna need adoption. There's always gonna be children that need to be child-centered in someone's life. But let's look at the full scope of the magnitude of what an adoptee goes through throughout their lifespan, they're adoptee and you know forevermore until I die. My parents are dead now, but I'm still an adoptee because that's how it was shaped and formed. Would I wish that on anyone? No. But what I'm out to do is try to change opinions of getting the the non Hollywood look at what being an adoptee is all about. Mm, beautiful. And, and I assume there's even so much opportunity for just support uh, of even children. Like, was there any support when you were growing up? And I'm, I'm assuming the answer is no, but I'd love to, to hear of like, hey, you've been adopted. Here's how to think about why this may have happened. Here's how to think about your worth and your value in the world. Here's some tools to, you know, try to navigate the difficulties of, of this situation in this circumstance? Unfortunately, no. And I do feel like we're moving, we're progressing to where we do have more things that are established, like adoptee competent therapists that are adoptees themselves. And so they know the questions to ask, even if a child, an adopted child says, I'm fine, I'm fine being adopted. And that was my brother, my adoptive brother said he didn't think adoption had anything to do with how riddled his life was with addiction, his relationship failures, his career fail failure, and he had an early death at mm -hmm. 60. And um, I say it was death by adoption. He was never able to look at what was driving his bus. 
So in my day, there was not a lot of help, but present day, that's what we're all moving towards in my community is trying to create more awareness, more awareness. That's the key. Beautiful. It's really incredible. So thank you so much for, for really doing a deep dive there. I, I really appreciate it. And I know that so many people do, especially people who are, you know, in the same circumstance. So back to specifically with alcohol, I want to ask a little bit more about your journey there and, you know, really specifically like with your social life and with, you know, not drinking anymore, navigating relationships. How, how was that for you? Um, I find that my behavior and my moods are so more even keeled these days. Um, I didn't ever realize how triggered up and down I was with maybe blood sugar levels or just, you know, having a too much drinking the night before. And so now I'm very comfortable walking into a social situation. I think I have the adequate amount of social anxiety now versus what it used to be of I'd have to walk in basically drunk to go into a social situation or even a dating situation. And now I have just able, I've been able to practice it enough to see that life in sobriety is so much better all the way around that I don't have that need anymore to have that crutch. It was such a big anchor on my soul <laughs> that is not there anymore. And I never want to forget that, you know, I never want to forget how possessed I was because that'll always keep me thankful and grateful for where I've been and where I'm headed. I love that. It's beautiful. Has anything else significant in your life that you'd like to sort of discuss or bring to the table as a result of this massive shift and change for you? Sure. I think that I'd have to say I worked the steps, the 12 steps, and I had the pushback from some people in my program, specifically adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families is where I found I was really fed with the principles of the 12 steps. And I was met with, oh, you sound too optimistic. You sound kind of Pollyanna-ish or toxic positivity because I truly feel like I got to step 12 of I'm giving back now. I'm um, in a meditative state of, of spiritual awakening. And I have been in that for 12, or I'm sorry, seven years now, September 18th, I will have been seven years. I don't think it's going away. I think it's me. I think it's always been me, but it had, was masked and muddied by all the gunk that I allowed cover me up. Hmm, so I don't think there's any going back. I love that. That's, that's amazing. And yeah, that the life of, you know, real just bringing so much consciousness to every moment and every day, you know, it's, it's such a journey to get there. It's such a journey. You said at the beginning of the podcast about how much you listen to the voices in your head, how you're so cognizant of them, how you've spent so much time in dialogue with them and integrating them and, and all of that work. And, you know, on the other side of that is just this experience of, of real consciousness. And I always, you know, I have this saying that I believe is true. And it's that, you know, conscious humans create change. Like mm -hmm. you, once you become truly aware, but not aware in a way that you have an agenda or that you have, you know, some almost, you know, need to fix the external world so that you feel okay inside, but just this real consciousness, like you're in 
such a place to, to create so much change. I believe that to be true. It's amazing. So Linda, why don't um, I ask you the, the question I kind of finish these up with, which is if you were going to go back in time to Linda, who was really stuck and drinking and, and feeling, um, you know, broken, and you were going to tell her about what life is like now, what would you say? Oh, I wish I had been prepped on that one. I would just have to say that with gentle kindness, I would try to paint a picture to show that you will get out of this. And it's going to take some hard work, a lot of hard work and consistent hard work. But if you remain willing to, to stay willing to, you know, find a better outcome, it's so worth it. Absolutely worth it. Beautiful. And I love that because it just doesn't, doesn't mince that, you know, this can be really hard work and it's not linear work. You know, it's yeah. not straight up into the left. It can loop and twist and turn. <laughs> oh, Definitely. And I asked for a lot of help too, of, of going to people that I really trusted. Trust was a huge thing. I had to find those people that were truly trustworthy worthy, and not just giving me lip service. And so once I started to trust myself and then trust other people and not be asked for a needy kind of help, but just, you know, here I am, where do I go from here? How can I take that next step? And I, my eyes and ears were open and my heart was open. And I hope I always remain that way. Beautiful. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for coming on and sharing your story. It's just been, just been such a joy. Well, for me too, I can't tell you it's on my bucket list. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. Stay curious.